Well, this morning we come to the topic of the Christian and the Eighth Amendment. And many voices in uh, our land are being heard at this time. Uh, there are doctors speaking, voices of politicians, voices from websites, from yes groups, from no groups, from canvassers, from ministers, from priests, from bishops, from disability action groups, heart-wrenching stories on Facebook. There, there are many voices, and there are many voices that need to be heard, and many questions that need to be answered. But there is one voice that we need to hear, because this voice gives us a foundation and a framework for how we hear all the others. We need an anchor point. And it would be easy to swamp you uh, this morning with medical facts and biological data and legal cases. But I want to speak specifically as a pastor and to bring to us what God has to say. I want to hear, first of all, God's voice and then consider how we should respond, our voice. And there's at least two things that God says to us in his word that are relevant to this whole topic of the Christian and abortion. First of all, God places immense worth on human beings and in particular the unborn child. This was in huge contrast to the ancient world that didn't value the unborn child at all, or the, even the born child at all. Um, they were almost, in some cases, a disposable commodity. But in contrast to that, God in his word shows in a variety of ways that he places great worth on the child, the unborn child. And I want to consider some of those for a moment. We see it in creation. If you're talking to people, everybody will agree that racism is wrong. They'll agree that slavery is wrong. They'll agree that discrimination on basis of disability is wrong. But why are those things wrong? Well, people can give all sorts of reasons for why they're wrong. But really, at the end of the day, why should one human treat another human equally. If we got here by evolution, then surely it would be reason for one human to treat another human with discrimination, the strong triumphing over the weak. That would be fair enough if we got here by evolution. But we know better than that. And people we speak to know better than that. They know that we should treat each other equally. And why is that? Well, evolution can't really account for it. It would say we should trample over everybody. But God's word accounts for it when it says that mankind, male and female, young and old, are made in the image of God. And that gives us value and meaning and dignity. It gives us honor. It calls us to respect every single human being, no matter who they are or how they got here. God says, let us make man, that means mankind, in our image. So in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then as we read on, we came this morning to Psalm 139. And we have the description, not just of God 
creating mankind generally, but how God, the psalmist says, knit us together in our mother's womb. And here you see the wonder of how the human is formed, the human being is formed in the womb. And as technology has advanced in the last uh, 40 years or so, we find that what David says in this psalm about the wonder of what happens inside the womb, it is spectacular. Advances in scanning technology have meant that we now know what happens within the womb. There's a fascinating video by a mathematician who specialises in medical visualisation. And this video is from conception to birth. Uh, we watched it with the, the young people of the youth group last night. That's astonishing. And I don't know if he's a particularly religious man, um, but he is just amazed at what happens in the womb. It is an, an incredible act of creation. Three weeks, the heart starts to beat. 18 days. He says it grows at the rate of one million cells a second. He described it as magnificent origami. Uh, as it starts to fold and the valves start to form, the chambers start to be shaped. Seven weeks, facial features are visible, including a mouth and tongue. The child is his own blood type. Nine weeks, he says, something you can recognize as a little human being. The brain, all these scans of the brain developing of the child in the womb. Fantastic and fascinating. Twelve weeks, the brain is fully formed. And even prior to that, the child can feel pain. Uh, whenever they go to, to maybe take a, a sample uh, uh, to, for analysis from the child in the, the womb, and they, they're placing a needle in the womb, you can see the child withdrawing from that needle. Alexander Cyrus, this mathematician, says, The mathematical complexity of how these things are done is beyond human comprehension. And he says, and I'm a mathematician. And he says, it's a mystery. It's magic. It's divinity. Each human being is this incredible work of art. A one-off masterpiece from the hand of the creator. That's the Bible's view. And science backs that up. That life begins at conception. And you know, if we draw a line anywhere other than conception, if we draw a line here at 12 weeks or at 16 weeks or at 19 weeks, and all the arguments that are used to do that, well, the, the embryo, the fetus, whatever we're going to call this, it's not, it's not viable or it's, it's entirely dependent on the mother or it has a condition that, that means it's maybe not going to survive beyond that. All of those arguments that are used, if you draw a line here and say that this entity here um, is not fully human yet, all those arguments can be used at the other end of life. Oh, this person's a burden. This person uh, is dependent on others. This person's life isn't viable. So to draw a line anywhere else other than to say this point of conception is illogical, it's arbitrary, and flies in the face of science and scripture, and logic. So, we see it in creation. We see it in command. God has made us uniquely. You are a unique being. 
And God has given a unique command to protect these unique beings. He says in Exodus 20, 13, You shall not murder. We are not to destroy God's works of art, his image bearers. Yes, all of creation is God's work of art. And we are not to misuse it, but in a special way. We are made by God and made to know God. Somebody might say, well, does that command really apply to the child in the womb? Does God consider them a person? Well, we've read from Psalm 139, but somebody might say, but Mark, that's poetry. Give us something a little bit more solid than poetry. Well, what about law? Lawyers don't tend to get carried away. In a legal document, you expect to find something set down clearly. Well, in God's law, the Ten Commandments, he says, do not murder. And then after that, and that's in Exodus 20, in Exodus 21, he starts to set out various circumstances um, of life and death cases. And in Exodus 21, verse 22, we read, If men are fighting and hit a pregnant woman, and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined. She to be fined. If there's no serious injury, whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That was the, the scale of damages. They weren't literal, apart from life for life, uh, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. They, those, those, those were a scale of damages set out that if somebody's eye was taken, you were to recompense them or compensate them the amount of an eye or a tooth was knocked out. You were to compensate them the amount of a tooth. That was what happened for adults. But God says what applies to adults, to born people, applies also to pre-born people. Injure one of them and you pay for it. Kill one of them and you will be executed for it. In God's mind, the pre-born human has the same value as the post-born human. Someone said to me recently, but it's just killing a fetus. Um, how they got past the just killing bit, I don't know. But God would say, it's a human being. I made them. I value them. You shall not murder. We see the value uh, set out further. Um, in comments in Scripture. I find it interesting how much of the drama takes place in the womb and comments uh, all over show that the womb, what is in the womb is relatable and personal to God. We can't mention all of them. Go home and look up some of those. David in Psalm 51 says that surely he was sinful from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. God in Isaiah says in Isaiah 44, this is what the Lord says. He who made you, who formed you in the womb, and who will help you, do not be afraid. Jeremiah 1.5 Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. The Apostle Paul said, God who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace. God relates to people in the womb. And then, most famously of all, Luke 1.41 Elizabeth the mother of John the Baptist. Here's Mary, the mother of Jesus, greeting her. And when she heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb. 
In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favoured that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. These are all little pieces of the jigsaw that show over and over again that God himself recognises the unborn, the pre-born individual as a person who can be called, addressed and loved. God's voice, placing value. And then one last area, we see it in condemnation. There's another set of passages that are part of the storyline where God speaks in condemnation on those who mistreat the child. And remember, for God, the child inside the womb, the child outside the womb, they have as much value as each other. God sent his people Israel into Canaan and he told them to destroy the Canaanites. We read that and think, surely that's genocide. But when we read the backstory, we find that for four centuries, God had been patient with the Canaanites. He's told Abraham that their wickedness had not yet reached full measure. He had sent Abraham amongst them so they could find out the truth. He had had spared people there and then he had warned them with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah that he was a God who took sin very seriously. But what did they continue to do? First and foremost, they sacrificed their children to the idol or the god Molech. Leviticus 18.21, God says, Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech. This was a huge metal idol with arms held out and they would light a fire under it so it would heat up and they would place their firstborn child in its red-hot arms. One writer says, Excavations in Palestine have uncovered piles of ashes and remains of infant skeletons in cemeteries around heathen altars, pointing to the widespread practice of this cruel abomination. Another writer says Canaanites worshipped by murdering their firstborn children as a sacrifice to these gods. Archaeologists who dig in the ruins of Canaanite cities wonder that God did not destroy them sooner. We think that's barbaric. How could they do such a thing? I fear that future generations will look back at our generation and fear and say the same thing about us. Over and over, God not simply condemns the Canaanites, but when his people started to mistreat the weak and the powerless, Isaiah 1, 15, Your hands are full of blood. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Now you might say, Mark, those, those are, aren't treating children in the womb. But we've seen that God understands the child in the womb to be of the same value as the child outside the womb. They're just as weak, just as vulnerable. Jeremiah 22, 3. This is what the Lord says, Do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor, the one who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. Here is God's voice saying, what is in the womb has great value to me. 
God speaks. And that's what he says. Let's also consider secondly here that God places a limitation on our choice. God places a limitation on our choice. That's the great buzzword. People say they're pro-choice. It's interesting to read uh, the spokesperson from Together for Yes saying that pro-choice is a nothing word and that people should really say what they are. They're pro-abortion. Yet people go around saying, well, we're not pro-abortion, we're pro-choice. We want people to have the choice. But the choice for what? In our 21st century world, we've made a God out of choice. Summed up in two great anthems. Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. And the poem Invictus by William uh, Ernest Henley. It matters not, the last verse says, It matters not how straight the gate, How charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Sounds glorious. But oh how tragic. Because God is the captain of our soul. He is the master of our destiny. And choice is based on the false idea that man should be able to choose anything and everything, that he determines his life. But God is the God who determines what is right and wrong. God sets down what we are to do and what we are not to do. God limits our choices, and he does so out of love. God speaks, and he limits choice. And whenever he says in Exodus 20, you shall not murder, he has said earlier in the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. He's limiting our choice. He's saying, I'm the true God. I'm the God that if you follow me, if you you trust in me, you will have life and life will work out well for you. And we are to live under God's rule. And yet the world in which we live is set on choosing all sorts of ways that eradicate any sign that God is creator. People want to be free to choose to do whatever they want to do so they can be master of their fate and captain of their soul so they don't have to listen to God so that they can do their own thing. And God says to us here, no, don't. These choices are not for your welfare. Live under my rules. And our world wants to defy God. And that's what lies behind much of the desire that we see around us. Let's erase God's fingerprints. Let's get rid of the Ten Commandments. Let's get rid of the Sabbath day. Let's get rid of God's definition of marriage. Let's get rid of God's definition of genders. Let's get rid of the value that God places on the child in the womb. And God has placed a limitation on our choice. And so we need to say to people, do you think all choices are equally valid? Do you think we should have complete freedom? Or we could say to them that you and I both agree that all choices aren't equally valid. A person shouldn't be free to cause harm. A person shouldn't be free to rape. A person shouldn't be free to abduct. A person shouldn't be free to abuse. We limit choice. 
Why do we limit choice? Because people are valuable. It's wrong to harm them. Why are people valuable? Because God says so. God's voice speaks to us and places a limitation on our choice. So we've heard from God's voice. Abortion is the willful destruction of a human being made by God in God's image, given by God for his purposes. It's wrong. It's utterly wrong and it's monstrously wrong. Hard circumstances may occur, but that doesn't allow us to deny the fundamental worth of a human being made by God. That's what people are wanting the choice to do, to deny another human being their worth and value. And we need to push them, I believe. When they say they're pro-choice, the choice to do what? What is it? Boils down to denying another human being, an innocent human being, their value before God, given by God. But what are we to say to this world? That brings us secondly, um, having set the foundations, and it's important that we have our foundations anchored in God's word and see that it's not just a, a small thing in God's word, but it's a big thing. But what are we to say in this world? What is our voice to be? Because we are called to speak out those verses from Proverbs, rescue those who are being led away to death, Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. Speak up for those who cannot, cannot speak for themselves. For the rights of all who are destitute. We are to speak up. God's word also calls us to bind up the brokenhearted and to make the wounded live. So we're to speak up for the the weak and we're to speak up for the hurting. We're to speak up for the voiceless. We're to speak up for those who are in pain. I want to call us to respond in three ways. As we speak, we're to be a voice for God. We're to be a voice for God. I don't mean that in some sort of trite, cliched way. I mean it in a profound, countercultural way. We are to be God's spokesman and woman in a world that increasingly wants to silence the idea of God. Spoke a moment ago about how the world around us is trying to eradicate traces of the Creator, to erase anything that speaks of a Creator, to pretend that there's only creation, no Creator, no God above us, above us only sky. Get rid of the Ten Commandments. Define marriage whatever way we like. Define sexuality whatever way we feel we want to. To be gender fluid. All distinctions, all fingerprints of God are being erased. People want to be free to live their lives as they please. They've silenced the voice of conscience. And now they want to silence the conscience of society. They don't want you or me chirping up with any reminders that there is a God to meet with who has a claim on their lives. And so when we take a stand and when we speak, we are bearing witness to a world of something far bigger and more significant even than the life of a child in the womb. We are bearing witness to a God who is there, 
and that his standards still apply and that people are accountable to him. We are being ambassadors for the living God. We're declaring that there is a creator as well as a creation, that above us there is not only sky. We're called to be a voice for God. We're called, secondly, to be a voice for the voiceless. You can't be a little bit pregnant and you can't be a little bit human, but you can be a tiny human, a little human. As we thought a moment ago, the things that you say about a tiny human, they can also be said about a bigger human. You can be a big human and not wanted. And you can be a little human who's not wanted. You can be a big human whose life is limited. And you can be a little human whose life is limited. You can be a big human who places a burden of care on others. And you can be a little human who places a burden of care on others. But none of that changes our humanness. In fact, in big humans, does it not call us to be more human? As as a society, we pull round and we help and we provide support and compassion. That's what we need more of in Ireland, not less of. And I think we have to say that our country has failed in the past to show the compassion that it should have done. And we, as we seek to be a voice for the voiceless and a voice for the hurting and a voice for God, we need to admit that, that we haven't got compassion right in the past. We have created an atmosphere where people are scorned and shamed rather than there being an atmosphere of grace and love. But none of that excuses removing the right to life to the unborn. And we silence the unborn at a staggering rate. I haven't given you any or many figures yet. Let me give you some. According to the World Health Organization, 56 million people die every year from all sorts of causes, from old age, heart attack, famine, cancer, war, crime, natural disaster, car crashes. We kill a further 56 million by abortion every year. So, Mankind kills as many human beings in the first nine months of their existence than death in all its other forms takes after birth. Incredible. 56 million. The current rate of abortion is the equivalent of 9-11. Remember 9-11? The planes flying into the Twin Towers. It's the equivalent of that happening every day 51 times. 51 times a day. 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami with its death toll of 280,000. It's the equivalent of that happening 200 times every year. It's like you wake up tomorrow and the entire population of England have been wiped out. They lie dead. Next year, on the same day you wake up and all of Italy lie dead. The next year you wake up and all of South Africa lie dead. The next year South Korea has been wiped out. And the year after that, Finland, Norway, Sweden, 
Denmark, the Netherlands, Belgium and Ireland all together wiped out 56 million. Who will be a voice for the 56 million? There are hard cases to be dealt with, yes. But those hard cases make up a tiny fraction of the 56 million. And whenever people raise the hard cases, perhaps something we need to say is, we'll talk about the half a percent of abortions that happen because of rape. And we'll talk about the the little over that uh, of a percentage that happen because of fatal fetal abnormalities, as they're so called. But what about the 98% of abortions that happen for social reasons? Let's talk about that first. Let's be a voice for those voiceless people. If a plague was wiping out 56 million every year, we would do our utmost to stop it. And so let us speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. And when somebody says, I'm not pro-abortion, but I think people should have the choice, we need to say the choice to do what? And we need to help them see that in giving people the freedom to choose, they too are culpable for opening a doorway that allows the flood tide of slaughter to sweep across. They may say, but I'm doing it for these hard cases. But those hard cases are only a tiny minority. And people use their choice to slaughter 56 million children every year. So will you be a voice for the voiceless? A voice for those who aren't given a choice. And then thirdly, we're to be a voice for the hurting. We're to be a voice for the hurting. Those who are hurting and afraid and think that abortion is their only option. Those who have been hurt by others and who may be trying to reclaim some control of a life that was ripped away from them for a moment and they're trying to regain control of it and they're hurting desperately. A voice for those who are hurting and broken hearted because they went in for a scan and they've been told that all is not well and their child will not survive long after birth and they're hurting and broken hearted. We have to be a voice for them. We are to be a voice for those who are hurting and terrified because they found out that they're pregnant. And they're wondering, what will people say? We're to speak the truth in love. And as we speak, we must speak truth, yes. And we must make sure it is the truth, that we're not spreading lies. And we must make sure that we do speak the truth, but we must make sure that we speak it lovingly. That people can see that we have a concern for the hurting. Matt Chandler, an American minister, said this, or wrote this last week. He said, as the church, we must not say of abortion, this is killing, without saying to pregnant women, we will serve you. We must listen, love, foster, adopt, give money, babysit, donate supplies, mentor young women, and support in whatever way God has equipped us. If we are saying the former, abortion is killing, without the latter, we will serve you. 
we aren't truly understanding the gospel. And we're a church, and we're about the gospel. And the gospel says that abortion is wrong, that abortion or, uh, says that abortion is wrong, but it says that there is help and hope from God. And we must be prepared to be that help and hope for people. The church needs to step up and be there to help people. Whether it's being involved in coming alongside somebody, whether it's involved in counselling, whether it's being involved in support groups, we're to be a voice for the hurting. And we are to bring the fatherly care of God that we have experienced into their lives. But there's another set of hurting people that we are to be a voice to. Those who have had an abortion and are finding out now that it didn't solve their problems but has left a legacy of pain. We are to speak in such a way that they don't think that our passion for life means that we are hostile to them. We understand that regret and hurt and guilt can be part and parcel of of abortion. And whilst we say abortion is wrong, we say that forgiveness is real. That there is hope and help and healing from God. And there's an amazing verse in Isaiah chapter 1, the same verse that says that our hands are full of blood. For we have trampled over the weak and the powerless, the fatherless and the widow and the orphan. God says, wonderfully, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And we get to proclaim that to people. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. Romans 8.1 There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And somebody might say, but I, according to what you said earlier, I destroyed one of God's works of art. I destroyed his image bearer. And we can say to them, yes, but my sin put Jesus on the cross too. And they looked at him and his face was marred beyond human likeness. I too am responsible for marring God's image bearer. His very son. My sin did that. And yet God has forgiven me. And if he can forgive me for that, he can certainly forgive you too. See, we have a God whose forgiveness is richer and greater than our sin. And we get to proclaim that because as a church, we're not simply pro-life, but we are pro-life plus. We have got something richer and better to proclaim. We can proclaim the wonder of grace and the wonder of forgiveness because guilt is terrible whether you feel it or not. So we are to be a voice in this world. In a world that wants to rebel against God, we are to uphold God's standards. In a world where there are people whose voices are silenced, we are to speak on behalf of the silenced. And in a world where there is pain and guilt, we are to speak the wonderful good news of forgiveness and help and hope and cleansing. You know, the Eighth Amendment in the Irish Constitution magnificently recognises the worth of both mother and baby. It's far in advance of many other countries. It's not backward. 
It's progressive. It's God-honoring and person-exalting. So let me encourage you to do all you can to keep it that way. And whatever the outcome is, we still need to be a people who do compassion better for those who find themselves in really hard circumstances. Will we be there to walk beside those who are hurting, to provide encouragement and practical support for them? That's what God our Father has done for us. Amen. Let me ask you to stand if you're able as we come to God in prayer. O Lord God, how can we live in a world that treats your image bearers so casually? Lord, I pray that you would have mercy on our world. What a staggering thing that you have not stepped in to annihilate us for our wickedness, for our callous disregard. We think death is a terrible curse in our world, and yet we kill as many as death in all its other forms takes. Oh, forgive us and have mercy, O oh Lord God. And we praise you that there is mercy. We praise you that we as individuals here can experience mercy for our sin. And then we can proclaim to others mercy and forgiveness for theirs through Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that. Father, we pray that you would encourage us to stand for you in a world that wants to find ways to ignore you. Lord God, help us to speak up on behalf of the oppressed, whether they're the oppressed in the womb or they're people who, who aren't being given a choice but who are being backed into a corner and told that they need to have an abortion. Lord God, help us to be a defender of the oppressed. And O oh Lord God, help us to bring your help to those who are hurting and grieving and feeling the burden of guilt. Let us speak to them with grace and mercy to bring help and hope from the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, safeguard our nation. Prevent us from taking this monumental step of wickedness. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.